Hi, I'm Andre Fratkin uh, from the Initiative on the Digital Economy at MIT, and today my guest is Ben Golub. Ben is an assistant professor of economics at Harvard University and is an expert in networks. Uh, welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're really excited to have you here to talk about networks. So just from an outsider's point of view, it seems like networks are becoming more and more important due to the rise of the internet. Uh, can you explain to us uh, what the economics interest in networks has been so far? Yeah, that's a great question. So economists became interested in networks uh, around the same time as the emergence of the internet, but maybe not directly because of it. There were a lot of questions and problems that existed in economics, which basically the existing approaches didn't fully address. There were big gaps in our understanding of why some companies do better than others or why some macro economies do better than others. And economists realized that understanding the networks of interactions in an economy or a company at a higher level of detail was going to be important in filling in those gaps in our understanding. And so literature emerged around that. And then, of course, the availability of data uh, and a lot of excitement around the Internet and things like that has, has helped the field become stronger and bigger over the past two decades. Yeah, that's definitely what I've noticed uh, watching this literature from the side. Um, so what, what is the typical economics definition of a network? So uh, usually in economics, we think about uh, agents uh, making production or consumption decisions. Where does a network fit in? So networks, really how you define them depends a lot on the application. So sometimes the networks we study are networks of communication, where people are talking about something and the network just says who will tip off somebody about a job. And that's defined by a lot of other facts, like who is friends with whom, who's worked with whom. Another kind of network is a, is a quite different kind of network, which is about complementarities. So for example, it may be that two people are uh, able to produce together more efficiently and than another pair of people, and the network there would encode whose skills match well. And so there's really all sorts of different networks that encode the kinds of relationships or interactions that are expected to be useful to model in a particular economic setting. Hmm, got it. So pretty much uh, it's uh, up to the researcher or the modeler to decide uh, what connections are important to include uh, as part of the network. That's right. There's no such thing as the the true network or the overall network. Uh, I mean, you could you could keep track of such a thing, but it would sort of involve all the information about people. That's too much detail. The whole point of modeling is that we want to reduce the amount of detail and uh, focus on the phenomenon that is going to be important for explaining some, whatever we're curious about. So in job search, people focus on information flow about jobs and whether, for example, you know, people are more likely to pass on jobs to someone who, is, who has a different set of skills rather than exactly the same so that they're not competing with that person. And, and so then you focus on, on that. But what, what we'd like to zoom in on what's going to be relevant for explaining the phenomenon in that, in that case. Well, that, that's a nice segue into your own work on social networks. So uh, can you tell us about the problem that you were trying to address uh, in your work? Yeah, so people had been noticing, sociologists had noticed since the, the really the 50s that there were, was a lot of information conveyed socially, obviously, and moreover, the kinds of networks in which people talked exhibited a lot of what's called homophily. Homophily comes from homo, which is the same, and phylos, which means love, and it's love of the same, it's a tendency to associate with 
those who are similar to you. That could be on demographic characteristics, age, race. And so we as economists got curious, sociologists got there before us for sure, and we got curious how that was going to affect the kinds of processes and decisions that economists had been had been interested in, uh, like, for example, smoking decisions in schools and what drives kids to make various choices, uh, whether the network perspective, in particular thinking about homophily patterns, was going to help us with better explanations of those phenomena. And what setting did you choose to study that question in? So we, uh, in terms of the practical setting, there was a great survey data set, the Ad Health data set, which surveyed behavior in 84 different schools for which we also had complete network data. So we were going to build, basically we decided that to one version of that question, which we were in a good position to study, was how does network structure affect a behavior like smoking in schools? And we had a lot of data on the kinds of social network patterns in schools, also a lot of data on on behavioral diversity in schools, and we had, and what we were, what we had to do was come up with a model that was going to allow us to sort of bring all those things together and make predictions about diversity of behavior based on the social network structure. So, uh, how did you try to tackle this problem? So we had to first devise a model uh, that was going to relate social network structure to behavior, and the way networks works generally is you have some local detailed theory of how you think individuals are behaving. And then the goal of the theory is to convert those small-scale predictions into large-scale predictions about how the whole network is going to affect the outcome. Because what we measure typically, I mean, in this data set, we actually had very fine-grained outcomes. But even so, we didn't have, for example, all the decisions that were going on over time. You only have certain average measures that are taken you know, every now and then. And so we had to really figure out how the local dynamics of social influence were going to translate into aggregate predictions about smoking in the school. So you mentioned one thing here, which is how different um, network structures might, might matter. So can you give us an example of uh, different types of network structures that exist? Yeah, so one big variable, again, the, the goal here is to try to focus on dimensions of difference that are interesting. And so one interesting dimension is how segregated is a network. Some high schools are very segregated, so black kids hang out almost only with black kids and white kids hang out with white kids. And we know what features of a school kind of affect those patterns. Uh, for example, if a school is 50-50 demographically, it tends to be, it tends to be more segregated because there's a critical mass of black kids and white kids to associate with each other. And so they don't really need to make across race links as much. And so those were patterns that had been noticed. And so there are some schools that are very segregated, others that look much more integrated. Got it. And so uh, when looking across these different uh, schools, you want what you wanted to do is you wanted to say, to what extent can we explain uh, the behavior of these kids as a function of the structure uh, of the network in the school. Exactly. And so our, our piece of that, this is now a, fl- a very active literature uh, with a lot of empirical papers that look at the, at the actual behaviors. And we realized as a first step that we didn't really have a theoretical framework that was going to relate segregation, for example, to the, ex- the, extent, the extent of smoking, the, ex- the diversity in that behavior across different social groups. So, we, so our first step was going to be to build a model to produce those predictions, which could then be taken to the data. And I, I assume that you built such a model. So what are the surprising uh, results from, from this model? 
So this was joint work with my graduate school advisor, Matthew O. Jackson. And so we, this work really came out of a sequence of conversations we started having about homophily. And, and the, the progress of the project was in, he had begun, begun exploring these questions and written a paper showing that in certain kinds of contagion processes, like, for example, you know, you start doing something as soon as someone you know does it. Uh, this could be, for example, adopting a new really cool technology. So there's your friend starts using Instagram, you realize it's great, you start using Instagram. In that kind of contact process, as it's called, homophily basically isn't going to make a difference. So a segregated school is going to behave basically exactly like uh, an integrated school in terms of how fast an innovation spreads. Segregation isn't going to make a big difference to the to the extent of the of the propagation. Other things will matter. And so we realized that, and then from there, the surprising finding was that for the for other kinds of processes, where what what you do depends on kind of the average behavior of your friends, their homophily was going to be really the main thing driving how how slow or fast the process of adoption was going to be, and how much diversity was going to there was going to be in adoption. And so we so realizing the contrast between these two processes, contact processes on the one hand, and average based processes on the other. That was really one of the main insights that came out of the work. Huh, that's that's really interesting. So if I can just retranslate those uh, different processes. One process is kind of like a disease. So if uh, someone sitting next to you coughs uh, and, you get the, uh, and you get the flu, then you might pass it on to other people. But another uh, type of process is uh, something uh, in which you're looking to others for their opinion. So I'm not gonna wear this particular brand unless uh, my friends are also wearing it because otherwise I'd be taking a, a social risk, something something like that. Is that a correct characterization? That's right. So there's, and in fact, people empirically investigate uh, these kinds of things for a particular real decision. What is it more like? And so, for example, uh, recently there was a paper out of the Facebook research group showing, studying the adoption of the equal sign, the equality uh, sort of pro-gay marriage sign on Facebook as your profile picture. And people, the researchers were curious, what did this process look like? And they came up with, it was basically, it looked like a threshold model where if three of your friends or so did this, then you were likely to do it. But one wasn't enough. And above three, it didn't make that much of a difference how many. So it looked like, you know, these things, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take this to the bank yet. But there is evidence that for that kind of process, which is something like a fashion statement or a political statement, you know, there's a, uh, a exactly as you said, a tendency to look at what's becoming widespread among your friends, not just what has appeared at least once, but for other things where it's about a piece of information, you know, like the tsunami is coming or, or you should buy the stock. If you believe that person, you should do it as soon as you hear about it, not, not wait until it becomes more widespread. That makes sense. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just interesting also because uh, while uh, we kind of in the model, when you model things, you try to uh, make things uh, uh, as, as simple as possible, this three threshold rule would never be something you would explicitly uh, write down in your, in your own model. You, you'd make uh, so, some other assumption, presumably. Absolutely. So we think of really the models we use, the epidemic contact process you said is one example, that's you get sick as soon as somebody gets sick, then there's the sort of average-based process where what you do is, an, if, in a, when, if your decision can be seen as a continuous variable, how much of something to do, you do the average amount in your social neighborhood. 
Those are all metaphors. We don't take those literally as descriptions of exactly what people are doing, but they're ways of capturing that there are really different kinds of processes. And so we're going to pick really extreme stick figure descriptions that are going to show us how they're, they're different. And then, of course, we do ultimately care about processes that match the reality. But the first step is to understand, give, give ourselves at least a theoretical sense of what the bounds are in terms of what can happen. Got it. Uh, and so, so let's say we have this averaging process and uh, uh, everyone kind of looks to everyone else for, for what to do. How does the level of segregation affect whether everyone in the population uh, kind of adapts a particular social mannerism or not? So the basic finding is that if you start out with a diverse arrangement of behavior, which may be correlated with your type, your race, let's say. So maybe black kids start out smoking less than white kids. That's actually the fact in the uh, in at least a lot of high schools that we looked at, that initially white kids um, would tend to smoke more. Then the key question is, you know, as these kids interact, they're going to move toward like a school norm of smoking. So as people are influenced by others, they're going to they're gonna move in this average-based updating theory. They're going to move toward others' behavior. And in the very long run, if you really let this theory run forever, you expect convergence. So people should really influence, as long as there's any influence across the groups, you should expect a behavior to converge. Now, of course, kids spend only four years in school, so we never really see convergence. And the question is, but we do see some, some pattern of moving toward the average behavior. So the question is, how fast is that going to go? Mm-hmm. So you, so just to reiterate that, so when you look at a school and the behaviors of individuals going from ninth to 10th and, and so on, they're becoming more similar in this particular behavior over that, time? That's right. So there's that's evidence. This is actually not our work, but, but work by various people working on the Ad Health data set has shown that there is tendency to converge to social, to social norms. So kids behave more like each other in 12th grade than in 9th, um, at least on certain behaviors. And the question is, how fast does that happen? How much do they move? Okay, got it. And and so, uh, what can you say in abstract about about that speed? Does that, I guess, do the tools of theoretical economics allow you to say anything about that? Yeah. So we, by modeling an idealized version of this process, we were able to say that in schools that are more segregated, in an average-based process, convergence is slower. And in schools that are less segregated, it's faster. People basically quickly converge to a group behavior because their friends, basically a typical person's friend circle is already a representative sample of the population. So if they just imitate their friends, they're more or less imitating the population. And then making that conclusion, the the real work was in taking that fairly intuitive idea and saying exactly what measure of segregation was going to matter, how you should measure it, can you measure it efficiently without asking everybody in the school who their friends are, things like that. Got it. And have you tried using this, this metric, or has anyone tried using this metric in other settings? So yeah, so the overall research program was part of one that was going on at the time to sort of define the measures of network structure that we thought were going to be important for updating processes. And this was bringing together and unifying a lot of ideas that had been out there in the literature since the 70s. But we sort of, with with Matt Jackson, my co-author, we had the sense that we had a pretty clean description of what was going to matter for both the long-run outcome of social learning and how you get there. And then based on that synthesis, he, with uh, a lot of development economists uh, here right here at MIT, uh, Arun Chandrasekhar, who was a graduate student at the time here, 
and Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee, uh, they've continued a very active empirical research program looking at how these measures predict the diffusion of innovations in the developing world. Arun is now a professor at Stanford, and they're continuing a, a program where, which really takes these ideas seriously as a means for figuring out how you inject innovations into a developing co- country or, or a local community like a village so that it takes hold and so that people can learn to use something new that might improve their economic lives. So what types of interventions are we actually talking about? So why, uh, why do we care about networks, let's say, if we're giving people uh, better knowledge about how to produce things in the, in the third world? Yeah, so in principle, networks, it certainly is not clear a priori that networks are the right thing to look at or the right way to do things. In fact, the conventional wisdom over time has been that you let you have public information programs. There's actually government programs in India that uh, explicitly send demonstration farmers into villages to demonstrate a new technology. And so it was believed that basically if you just made the technology available and you used a technique that we might call, you know, broadcasting, teaching people and giving people access to demonstrations, then you wouldn't really have to worry about where exactly in the social network you would inject things, or you that, that wouldn't have to be an explicit part of your targeting. But basically, there's a sense that a lot of very beneficial technologies haven't penetrated anywhere near their potential. And so... So what, what types of technologies are you talking about? So something like new hybrid seed uh, that allows you to... that that's more hardy, or the correct use of fertilizer. So all farmers use some kind of fertilizer, basically, but knowing how to use chemical fertilizer correctly is delicate. If you use too too little it doesn't work obviously use too much and your crops die so knowing how how to put the right amount checking those are skills that someone can learn from someone else but it's it hasn't been successfully conveyed through the kind of broadcasting paradigm that was the main one until fairly recently and so people are thinking well can we use the fact that people talk about this stuff to get these technologies and another very important example is microfinance so the idea that people can take small loans, small in, in, you know, by, by our standards, but big to these people, uh, to start a new business. That was also something that really wasn't taken up as much as m- many economists thought it should be or could be. And so a question is, could people learn about how useful this is by seeing their friends and using it? So has, do we know yet whether these types of interventions can work if you target a specific part of the social network? So yes, in this recent program that I mentioned, uh, a paper that was published in Science by Banerjee, Chandrasekhar, Duflo, and Jackson showed that the injection point uh, where an intervention is first introduced in a village, this was a microfinance intervention, makes a big difference to how much it's spread. And they, re- they looked at it very carefully and split out the phenomena of someone becoming aware of an innovation, which is more like that epidemic process we talked about earlier. As soon as you're aware, you'll kind of know it. You'll like you're likely to pass on the information to other people you know, and actually being being persuaded to use it by pure influence. And they were trying to look at which of these is more important. But most the most important finding is that uh, there was a lot of dependence on how central in the community the initial injection point was. So they, they were looking at a question that was a little different from the segregation questions I mentioned, but they were really curious what was going to be, what was going to affect the amount that an idea would diffuse. And it turned out that if you hit a more central individual defined in a certain very particular way, that's going to lead the community to be much more aware of the, of the technology. Interesting. Uh, that seems like a resounding success for uh, people that are interested in uh, 
studying how networks affect the economy. Yeah, it's a real, people really took the idea seriously, took them to the field. It really looks like network centrality matters. And one of my favorite parts of the paper is that they didn't just look at, at the measure that the theory that we discussed earlier predicts, but they also looked at other measures like how how many friends does someone have or are they in a prestigious position in the village like are they an elder or a religious leader because you might have thought that measuring this network or caring about the network is overkill it's going to be obvious who the important people in the village are and it turns out that those other measures didn't do nearly as well as the measures that came out of the network theory oh wow um yeah that's really cool so i kind of want to move a little bit forward and um uh, think about go, kind of looking at uh, the theory of networks. What are the most exciting questions that we don't know the answers to? That's a great question. So, one question that the science paper asked and that suggested an answer, but we don't really know the answer completely, is is when do what's the mechanism through which networks work is it mostly making people aware of information or is it influencing their behavior do do, do i learn from my friends about what's out there but make my own decisions basically as if i were acting alone or do i really you know am i strongly influenced to imitate my my friends actions in many settings it's difficult to separate those and and the convincing analysis of you know when information is the dominant channel and when imitation is the dominant thing is that's something that the literature is still left to answer and another question is social information can be functioning in ways that are healthy for society or bad so there can be people can become informed about something that is important and they wouldn't know about like this fertilizer example but in other cases there can be sort of echo, echo chambers that propagate useless or wrong information like people can believe uh, a rumor that is false maybe that Barack Obama was born in Africa and they hear it repeated and the reason it's repeated is basically be because people heard it from other people and so understanding when social information transmission has a sort of self-cleaning effect and is capable of discerning the false from the true versus when it's just a, a sort of way to propagate a bad thing uh, a rumor or a misleading piece of advice that I think is critical. Yeah, I guess that would seem to um, depend very much about how verifiable a piece of information is uh, through objective sources and whether anyone pays attention to those objective sources. So I guess uh, maybe in a lot of social behavior, uh, there wouldn't be uh, such an objective source. So for example, if uh, someone did something scandalous, whereas uh, uh, with regards to science, hopefully the, the process would converge. Yeah, so certainly being able to verify the information is an important aspect of this. There have been recent game theory models that think of it as costly to verify. So, you know, based on how, how many rumors there tend to be, individual people can make the decision to look more closely into something they heard or not. And so we could even, even so a little bit surprisingly, even when something is verifiable, if on average the social network conveys trustworthy information, it's easy to propagate something false through it because people don't want to put in the effort of auditing it if it usually is true what they hear, right? You only want to kind of double check when you think you might be being tricked. So there's sort of a tension here where it has to be, if everybody's trusting, then it's easy to trick them as a group. Yeah, that is, that is kind of interesting. I can uh, definitely see that happening 
a lot of, on on the internet. There's a great example, if I can interrupt you, yeah, uh, sort of it. a mystery. Uh, it, a lot of people believe that the phenomenon of cow tipping occurs. If you you know if you mention cow tipping, <laughs> people will say, you know, yeah, there's something that kids in in you know midwestern states do when they get really drunk at night. Uh, there's a engineering kind of a physics paper, more written of an engineering paper, discussing the fact that it's basically physically impossible for even three strong males to tip a cow. And and a more direct piece of evidence is if you just type cow tipping into YouTube, you're not going to find any any examples of this happening. You, know, you can find many other related phenomena. You know, many other many other phenomena that that are scandalous and people have captured on video. So the truth is, there's no cow tipping. But many people kind of have vaguely heard a story, and and many people I've talked to about this say, oh yeah, my friend told me that he. And this is always false, but people just don't bother to check. Yeah, I guess it, it's also one of those things where. Uh, uh, putting on the economist lens, the benefit from verifying that this is true or false is close to zero because it doesn't affect your life in any way other than if you were planning to go cow tipping yourself. So uh, exactly, it's a fun story. In fact, it's, if anything, you probably you know you it's sort of a little bit entertaining. No, it might be kind of a buzzkill to say, oh, that's all you know, that's all lies. That doesn't happen. So people don't have incentives to verify. And I do think with things that are directly relevant to people's lives, like, you know, if somebody says, I heard you can get car insurance for free, that rumor wouldn't wouldn't really get very far because people would have incentives to go out and check. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So um, just kind of for the last set of questions that I want to ask you, um, uh, we're going to bring this back to the fact that this is the initiative on the digital economy. And uh, networks do seem to be particularly important on the internet. Can these insights that we've learned from these villages apply to uh, social advertising? And if so, have you do you have any good examples? Great question. Uh, I think there's a lot of interest, and a lot of it is is not in the academic sphere because it's so well incentivized in the private sector to figure out you know how friends influence each other. I think. The research, I mean, based on public information, it's it's clear that companies like Facebook are investing a lot of effort into understanding how friends influence each other's behavior and how to optimally target their advertising. So it's not even, I mean, their data science shops are focused primarily on this question and occasionally the research community gets thrown scraps where we, you know, they, they are also willing to ask a question that is of broader interest. So I think the basic concept has is definitely already penetrated into the commercial sphere on this. Um, so to me, the real question is, what are some of the domains of application where it's not yet obvious that social influence or social network data is going to be useful, but but it's worth exploring. It may have a big social value. And do you have do you have anything in mind? I was thinking. I mean, the, uh, some interesting examples are like, and this is also emerging now. Companies like Lending Club, basically using the information latent in a social network about who's trustworthy, who who can be relied on to repay their debt, who is likely to have a good job. There's a lot of information there, um, and that could be used to make consumer credit markets more efficient. I think, on the whole, there's a lot of room for improvement there. Of course, there are huge privacy concerns. And people might not want to merge their financial and social lives. Uh, in fact, that's one of the benefits of a developed economy, that unlike in these villages, the person you have beer with is not the person that you uh, 
need to borrow money from, right? And so it, it's sort of an interesting, now companies are trying to bridge that gap and, and use social information for commercial purposes. But at the same time, the challenge is going to be doing that in a way where people don't feel like their their privacy is being invaded. Yeah, it seems to be a big challenge. I remember there were all these companies that uh, wanted you to share your purchases with your friends. And uh, in the end, people were not comfortable doing, doing that. On the other hand, uh, the entire existence of Facebook and, and other social networks where you share your photos uh, would have been hard to predict a priori, especially considering uh, that uh, a lot of these photos aren't always flattering or can be embarrassing in hindsight. Exactly. So yeah, I think we really just, there's some aggregate uncertainty, as economists would say, something we just don't know unless we try it about what people are willing to share. And it should be said that sharing is complicated. You really need a an equilibrium, a system-wide perspective to understand the incentives for sharing. Because one thing that Mark Zuckerberg often says is that the goal is to make the world more open, more connected, more to make people, to give people opportunities to share if they want to. Uh, And if you don't want to share, that shouldn't hurt you. Of course, this is just wrong. There's a nice paper by economic theorist Ron Abramitsky, which points out that, you know, if you give everyone the opportunity, you create a website where people can stand up and say, oh, by the way, I'm not gay, uh, you know, even though you certainly didn't coerce someone to say anything about that, that is going to change what, what it's like to be gay in such a community. Uh, and so you can often have kind of what economists call unraveling, where by giving certain people the opportunity to do something, you you make the revelation decision different for, for others. And so understanding all those externalities is something I think economists can do. Yeah, that's that is interesting. I mean, I guess well, one setting in which that might be applicable is just uh, posting any information about yourself on the internet. So um, in the past, it was the norm where uh, most people didn't have their own online presence, uh, but now it's the norm that you do have one. And then uh, when you go on the internet and you search for someone and they don't have a website, it's it's surprising, and perhaps it's even more surprising not not for a random use case, but let's say I want to transact with this individual. It raises all sorts of alarms, and many online uh, companies have been actually using signals about people's websites, uh, whether they have them or not, whether they have an online presence, in order to figure out whether they're trustworthy for transacting with. So in some sense, those individuals who have a strong preference for privacy might be really hurt uh, by this new so-called equilibrium in which uh, everyone is expected to share their information on the internet. Yeah, and you know, one one thing that people have tried multiple times that hasn't really taken off is things like reviews for uh, people. Like if you went on an, you know, you had an online date with someone, and you could, in principle, have a platform where people could leave a review. And and there have been some services that have tried this a little bit, but again, that that's made people uncomfortable. But even if you sort of, you could imagine a world where people could just write nice things unprompted about someone. And now if I Google you and I don't find any nice things that people voluntarily wrote about you, I'm worried, right? And that, that immediately changes the game. So so there's a lot of things that people can do without without every individual having any say. Uh, they can, as exactly as you said, what it means now not to have anything about you on the internet can totally change. Yeah, I mean, and that's actually one of my big worries with uh, all this optimism about uh, social network data is that what it means to be a participant of a social network is changing over time. So even if we think that at this point in time, 
uh, having a lot of Twitter followers means one thing. It could mean something very different uh, even in just a year from now. Uh, so we always, you know, as people that are thinking about how to use this data, uh, whether it be academics or in the private sector, we have to think, uh, are, are we current enough on, on, on the way in which we're using this data? Yeah, absolutely. This, the issue that the meaning of a signal can change over time really should make people more conservative. And I think a lot of people now do use, do try to exercise caution in attaching all their online identities to each other. Um, but I think in, we're, as academics, I think we're mostly spared from this. I don't feel a ton of pressure to be on board with the latest social network. But when, when I lived in Silicon Valley, as you did, there was a I think a pervasive sense that you had to have like in your signature you had to have the latest stuff like if you didn't have a Twitter handle that was like a little bit you you were behind the times in certain industries and I think that that can actually create from an economist perspective some of this has got to be wasteful that people are just trying to figure out like how do I signal that I'm up on this uh, and then they're also having to make all these calculations about is this going to be hurt me in the future and that innovation has this cost of people having to figure out what's worth their while. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, the the closest analogy for a lot of these uh, social networks is actually fashion, where uh, I don't know whether fashion in general is increases societal societal welfare or whether it's good or bad, uh, but certainly for some people, specifically those that don't enjoy keeping track of the fashion, uh, they can appear outmoded and and uh, it might hurt them in some ways, and so even if they don't enjoy uh, figuring out what is going to be cool this season, they, they, they will be coerced into, into doing it. Yeah, and it's one thing that's cool in these things is that people with a preference for not engaging, like people with a preference for ignoring fashion trends or people with a strong preference for privacy uh, are actually provide a very positive externality to others from being more or less forced into the equilibrium where you have to pay attention. So one thing I was very curious about is when apps came out that let you um, track a track someone else but often you know the typical use case would be a spouse and you could always let your spouse know where you are so i know i know couples that use this you know when somebody's like coming back from the airport they they don't want to be texting all the time but there's also of course like once this technology is available if a lot of people have it on there's a there's a meaning in having it off there's someone might might wonder well why are you doing that and one i think one thing that has happened there is many people just don't like you know who are not doing anything wrong or anything that they would be ashamed of, just don't like having it. And so that creates sort of a, a, a sense that it's still okay not to have it. But those people are basically, you know, in a sense, providing cover for people who want their privacy to do things that perhaps their spouse wouldn't like. And similarly, you know, people who use PGP to encrypt their casual email are providing, in some sense, cover for terrorists, because if only terrorists use PGP, you wouldn't need to read yeah, the messages, yeah, yeah. right? That, that, is, that is interesting. And in fact, uh, this is kind of uh, going to bring me to the last point of our uh, conversation, which is thinking about these incentives. For example, the fact that terrorists are potentially helped by better encryption uh, mechanisms that are used by everyone else in the population. Um, what is the difference between kind of the economics perspective uh, on, on modeling networks versus uh, computer scientists? So computer scientists are obviously very influential in, in a lot of these companies, uh, but they, they sometimes have a very different approach. Yeah, so I, I think there's been a very fruitful collaboration between computer scientists and economists. Computer scientists have invented all of the algorithms that economists use to analyze networks and many of the other mathematical techniques. Uh, my sense is that the interaction is actually not one 
where there are different interests, but economists bring new application areas of social networks that, that computer scientists may not have been aware of. So, for example, the notion that uh, over-the-counter trading in financial networks uh, is a very important part of financial markets is one that you know most lay people don't know. You have to be sort of a financial economist to know that a lot of very important uh, contracts, like most debt, most bond trades, are done not on a big exchange, but by people making phone calls to each other. And so th th that's a network. Computer scientists probably weren't aware of that, but now there's good recent work on financial networks that, that has a strong computer science component because basically financial economists did the translation and said, look, here's a market, here's rephrasing it in your terms. You can think of it as a graph. Certain people have our trading relationships, other, other people don't. And how, how do you analyze the worst case you know, financial contagion in this graph? That kind of thing is now very much done in computer science departments, but uh, bringing the problems. So I think it's a, they, they, it's a great collaboration because they have a lot of tools and a lot of energy for working on problems, often much faster than economists do. And we have a, a set of areas where networks are important, but you need to do some, you have some subject matter expertise to translate it. Got it. That makes sense. It's, uh, it's becoming interesting how uh, computer scientists are becoming complement to research in all sorts of uh, areas, not just in uh, economics, but also in biology and chemistry and, and other fields. Um, okay, well, so uh, as we're wrapping this up, just if people want to learn more about uh, about networks and the science of studying networks. Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, so in line with the digital economy, there's a great Coursera course by a person that I've mentioned already in this uh, in this interview, uh, Matt Jackson, who's at Stanford. He has a, a popular Coursera course on social and economic networks, which does get at times a little technical, but also has great kind of overview and high-level description of a lot of different applications. So I'd recommend that. Um, and then there's uh, and, and listeners, I'll definitely link to that uh, in the in the notes. And then there's a also a book that's the textbook for a very very popular class at Cornell uh, called Net Networks, Crowds, and Markets. That's the name of the textbook and the course. It's by David Easley and John Kleinberg, two professors at Cornell who are really leading. One is a leading economist working on networks, and the other is a leading computer scientist. And they do a great job. It's a course that's taken by, by a lot of Cornell undergraduates who don't have a lot of technical background, but uh, they take this course to fulfill a quantitative requirement. And it does a great job of, of translating networks and really bringing the ideas down to a level where, where they can be appreciated and enjoyed by, by people even without a lot of economics or CS background. Interesting. Well, all right. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show today. Uh, and uh, good luck with your research, Ben. Thanks a lot for having me, Andre.